G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Previously on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Last time we talked about what curses are and how they work. And we touched on some of that Egyptian background that helped to illustrate this narrative with curses against spirits known as serpents. And we paid particular attention to remembering that these are idiomatic expressions. When it comes to the nature of these divine beings, we shouldn't be surprised that the same kind of entity that Genesis 1 described as birds or fish could also be talked about in Genesis 3 as a serpent. We had a bit of Christology for a change when we talked about Paul's use of Genesis 3 in Romans. There we saw that God would crush Satan under the feet of his people. And I mentioned that this only makes sense if the seed of the woman through the incarnation of Jesus Christ become the people of God acting as the body of Christ. We're going to spend some time today looking in more detail at the verse that Paul had in mind when he wrote that, specifically Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was a uh, a pretty uh, interesting insight into Paul's mind, really, as a Jewish follower of Christ. Yeah, yeah. But before we get deep into that, Another thing that we touched on last time was the idea that we're reading a story of archetypes. Adam and Eve represent all humanity before God, and they have a responsibility to impart to humanity the representation of God. The serpent also is representative of divine beings that have chosen to rebel against God. It's possible that he represents them as a leader over them, but since that's not the concern of the author of Genesis, we're not given that information either way. However, it would seem apparent from the archetypal nature of the text that it is at least a consideration. When we look at other works, and I'm thinking primarily of the prologue and epilogue of the book of Job, a case could certainly be made for the serpent to be identified as Satan by the time we get to the Second Temple period. So it's not surprising to find the Apostle Paul and John the Revelator both picking up on these ideas and presenting them in the New Testament. Yeah, that's right, because it's John who says in Revelation, that old serpent, the devil or Satan, he's the one who says that. Yeah, yeah. So there's other ways to make these connections, and it really depends on how many hoops you want to jump through by going through Second Temple period texts and noting which divine bad guys get identified with the same names as others. So in some of these texts, you have names like Belial, Semyaza, Azazel, Mastema, etc. And eventually you get to the point where you can identify all of these with Satan. The problem is that for many people, they don't see the representational function of Satan as presented in the New Testament. And that leads to them assuming that these are all different names for the same guy. And that's an interesting point that you won't necessarily hear from a lot of commentators on this. Yeah, I believe that we should flip that around and suggest that Satan functions as a representative of many individuals identified with supernatural evil. It works in the New Testament. It works in the book of Job. It works right here in Genesis. God doesn't condemn the serpent to death or exile him, but God does curse the serpent in such a way that it has the effect of removing from him the blessing that was given to divine beings in Genesis 1. He's now worse off than the animals that never received a blessing in the first place. And the end of verse 14 does suggest an end for the serpent because it implies strongly that his days are numbered. The serpent is commanded to retreat from his position of aggression, to submit to God and to be humbled before him, but the serpent is not left without a sense of purpose. God gives a pronouncement of destiny that indicates his role as an adversary that would pursue those people who constitute what the Bible calls the dust of the earth. That's the population outside of those faithful to God. 
outside of Eden. We talked a lot in season two about how the biblical use of dust is connected to the idea of vast multitudes and how the common experience of ordinary people can also be represented in dust, which is why it is such a common motif connected to death. So there's a double meaning behind the use of dust in that expression in Genesis 3.14. So how does that work exactly? On the one hand, the dust which is found outside of the garden represents the people who are not involved in the counsel of God in the Garden of Eden. So these are ordinary people going about their day-to-day lives and looking toward Adam and Eve as a royal priesthood, connecting them to God, if indeed they are loyal to God. They are an innumerable population, all sharing a common humanity, each individual indistinct from the others in the community. On the other hand, dust represents also the fate that is common to all humanity, and in this regard we can only be referring to death. Just as the serpent goes about gathering to himself those outside of the family of God, he assumes lordship over all who die in their mortality. As the serpent who consumes the dust and absorbs it into himself, this divine rebel gathers to himself all those who die in rebellion against their creator. So we covered a lot of ground in recapping the major points of last week and hopefully clarifying those. If anyone has further questions about what we've discussed here, please feel free to send in a question and I'll go into that in some detail to try and clarify in the Q&A. I wonder if anybody will ask about those Egyptian spells and the fact that the title of those pyramid texts was Spells Against Snakes and Scorpions. And that would uh, make for an interesting Q&A segment, that's for sure. But it's uh, time to move on and get into verse 15 for this episode. So let's hear it again to keep it at the forefront of our minds. Yeah, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Doing a lot better at saying enmity this week. It's a bit unfortunate that so many translations such as the one I've just quoted prefer the use of an English term like offspring or even children. There's actually a far better word to describe what the original Hebrew text presents to us and that is the word seed. Some of you might get excited at the mention of seed because you'll be familiar with the idea of the serpent seed doctrine and the idea that this is a reference to the serpent having biological children. I think I've covered this topic enough in previous episodes, so I'm not going there today. Again, if you've listened to all my previous material on that topic and you still have questions, you can send them in. I will take them in the Q&A. So what does this mean, this appearance of the word seed in our text? Once again, this is a term that we really need to lay hold of if we want to have any hope of understanding its use throughout Scripture. It's a motif that appears again and again. Yeah, it's an unusual choice of terminology if we just talk about offspring, isn't it? I mean, I, I see how it makes sense. But does it matter, really? I mean, why not just say children or something similar? Oh, good question. When Jesus asks rhetorical questions like, do figs come from thorn bushes? He's not just proposing some kind of an absurdity. He's appealing to the natural understanding of how things work in the world God has created. Trees produce fruit in which is their seed. The seeds grow into trees of the same kind, which in turn produce fruit of the same kind, in which is seed of the same kind. Animals reproduce and bring forth animals of the same kind. And that's not an argument against evolution, just an observation of the common experience that we all have. It's Genesis 1. Now, you all know that I like to throw in a bit of the King James here and there, and since it's one of the few translations that consistently uses the correct terminology in these passages. I've got a bunch of readings. And they're all in the King's English. So buckle up. Oh, boy. Gird thy loins, gentle folk. Gird them and gird them well. All right. Well, if indeed they be girded, let's go to Genesis 1, verses 11 to 12. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And Genesis 1.29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. So in those instances, we're talking about plants, and it's important that we see this terminology of seed being first used in relationship to plants because it establishes for us that the principle behind the terminology of the seed is not one of sexual reproduction. What a plant produces is something that will have the effect of bringing forth more of the same plant. The new plant will do what the old plant does. The new plant will resemble the old plant. The new plant will also produce seed like the old plant. This is what seeds do. It's not about sex. It's about multiplying more of the same. So when we move into Genesis 3 and we find the same terminology in play, that's a very strong indicator that we need to consider an interpretation of the text that does not rely on sexual function. So it's the same terminology then? Yeah. Watch how it works as we go through some other places in Genesis. There are too many to include them all, but this sample represents the general pattern of biblical usage. And uh, as I say, anyone who's curious about that can certainly go and look them all up at their own leisure if they like. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So God issues the curse against the serpent, which is, of course, what we're studying right now. And then we find that followed in the next chapter by another occasion where we find the seed is mentioned. When we consider the implications of God's pronouncement in Genesis 3 and his use of seed as consistent with what we saw in Genesis 1, we're reminded again of the functional nature of the seed in the story of Cain and Abel and the birth of Seth. So there's seed in that story as well? Yeah, Seth is another of the same kind who replaces Abel, but where Abel was a mere breath, as his name in Hebrew implies, Seth is appointed or set in place by God as a lasting seed that will produce a legacy. This seed will take hold and will function as seed should. Thus, the seed of the woman will not be extinguished. We really miss the meaning in our translation, but to a point or to set in place a seed, I mean, this is really simple. It's planting. It's planting a seed. There's only one reason why you plant a seed is because you want more seed. God's making sure that these people will perpetuate through Seth. That's what the text is conveying here. This child is going to be the future of the people of God as described in this narrative. And that tells us something really important about the contrast between Cain and Seth. Because when Cain was born, Eve, his mother, said, I have gotten a son with the help of the Lord. And it was like she saw this as her own possession, something that she'd been given. And this time it's clear that God has planted the seed. The one who planted the seed is the one who gets the increase. This is a child that God has planted, a seed that God has planted. And that's in spite of the fact that Cain, who functions like the serpent in that he has brought death into the world, serves as the seed of the serpent. Again, this is not a sexual connection. Cain is the seed of the serpent because he does 
the same thing that the serpent does. You were uh, just saying last week uh, about how you spent so much time in season one answering questions about Genesis 4, and here we are in Genesis 4 again. So what on earth are we going to do next season? Oh, I know. Maybe just read the whole chapter really, really slowly again and again so that people have to listen to the text and start to understand that serpent seed theology has no place in Scripture. Anyway, here's John chapter 8, verse 44. Here's Johnny. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And First John, chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. This is exactly why Jesus accused the Pharisees of being sons of the devil, because they did the works of the devil. It's not about sexual relationships and family bloodlines and all that kind of stuff. If you do what your teacher does, then you're his seed, you're his son. If you do what your hero does, then you're his seed, you're his son. The religious leaders murdered the prophets, just like Cain murdered his brother, just like the serpent led the woman and her husband to their deaths. And that is why Jesus can say that the Pharisees were sons of their father, the devil. That is why John can make the same argument regarding Cain and his seed. Look at the sons of God in Genesis 6. They're called sons of God because they're the same type of being that God is to a lesser extent. They don't compare to God, but they're like him in their being. And after they do the wrong thing, they lose their status as members of God's family. When they stop doing what God does, they stop being God's sons. Obviously, we're going to look at that in much greater detail when we get into Genesis 6 in the course of this podcast series. Now let's look at Abraham. Genesis 13, verses 15 to 16. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And Genesis 15, verses 3 to 5. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And Genesis 17, verses 7 to 9. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. 
and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. And Genesis 22:17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. So we, or rather you, uh, just uh, read a bunch of passages about Abraham and uh, God's promises to him, that he would provide for Abraham the seed that would then become comparable to the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. Yeah, and there's some really significant theology there. As we know, the dust is the people of the world outside of Eden, which means that outside of the land where God dwells with his people, the seed of Abraham, those after his kind, those who are faithful to the Lord God as Abraham is, they will perpetuate. Incidentally, Sarah, Abraham's wife, her name sounds like the word for seed, Zerah. And what will be their nature? Well, they're going to be like the stars. And the stars, according to Scripture, represent the sons of God. We're being told that unlike the sons of God in Genesis 6, they went against God's nature and as a consequence are removed from the family of God, according to Psalm 82. The children of Abraham will become sons of God, and this is a promise that was reiterated to the seed of Abraham, as we see with Isaac. So in Genesis 26, verses 3 to 4, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we see it again with Isaac's son, Jacob, in Genesis 28, verses 3 to 4. God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham, to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And further on in... Chapter 28, verses 12 to 14. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Moses holds God to his word on this at Mount Sinai. Um, after the law was given in the incident of the golden calf, made uh, God angry with the people. We all know that story. Yeah, that's right. Here it is saying Exodus 32, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. So God relents from bringing a disaster upon the people because of the promise that he had made to Abraham and to his seed. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So you can see the value of being considered the seed of Abraham. Uh, actually, I found it interesting that in that verse in Exodus 32, Moses says 
Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We're normally used to reading Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the use of Israel is actually important because as we're going to find, as we continue through this episode, we're going to learn that Israel uh, serves to illustrate the combined people of God, regardless of where they come from. And it was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt, uh, for those who are familiar with the story. And of course, Abraham being the means by which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So uh, it all ties in. It's very important when you see certain terms being used, you pay attention to why those are there. So yeah, as we find out through the course of the primeval history, as we continue through this podcast, the seed of Abraham is connected back to the seed God planted, whose name was Seth, who is the referent for the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. People are going to get upset when they hear this because they thought I was going to say Jesus. But you can only retrospectively see Jesus in this pronouncement of destiny. As delivered to the serpent and in the hearing of the woman, this pronouncement could mean nothing more than the next seed to come forth from the womb of the woman. That's the beauty of seed. It keeps on perpetuating again, again, and again, and again, because that is the function of seed, even after it dies. You mean like Jesus? Yeah, like Jesus. I was trying to be subtle. It wasn't very subtle. Other people might have enjoyed catching on to that later. I'm pretty sure nobody would have missed that. I mean, it's the resurrection. Everybody knows about the resurrection. Yeah, I was just trying to be cool about it, man. We're not cool, guys, Tim. We're not even men. Yeah, but I bet two men could be. Yeah, but we're not the two men. True. Yeah, not the two men. Anyway, as I say, it's fine for Paul to view this passage through his Christology after the fact, after the resurrection. See, I was going there anyway. You blurted it all over the place. Before I got there, it was like vomit, blah, 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 everywhere. Well, like vomit, it's obvious. <laughs> Very obvious. But for the woman in this passage and for the serpent, their hope is that one after their kind who reflects their nature might get the upper hand. And ultimately, we can't even rely on biology to achieve this because Abraham doesn't even have his own toledot. It was God who gave his wife the ability to conceive in her old age. And we see this pattern in scripture again and again for the barren woman, the virgin, the one who's destitute and without hope. There is the seed that God has planted. Jesus Christ was not even fathered by man. He too was planted in the womb of a woman. But the text has been preparing us for this. First, the man chosen out of obscurity, the dust of the ground. Then the seed planted by God, even though we know his father. Then the seed of Abraham from a man and woman who were biologically incapable until finally in Christ we have the ultimate miracle, the son of God in flesh. And he is the one who will fulfill Genesis 22:17 and possess the gates of his enemies. Now, what about this language of conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, all this bruising that's going on? Clearly, the language does suggest some kind of conflict or struggle between the two sides that God has placed at enmity with each other. The question is, what is the nature of that conflict and how will we see it played out in Scripture? Because on the face of it, this looks just like some kind of a tit-for-tat battle that will continue through the ages. Like watching uh, itchy and scratchy cartoons or something. Yeah. Or a never-ending marathon of Roadrunner cartoons. True. But my question is, and this may sound familiar, what is the nature of that conflict and how will we see it played out in Scripture? Because on the face of it, this looks like just some kind of tit-for-tat battle that will continue through the ages. Like Spy versus Spy in the old Mad magazine. 
or Lex Luthor versus Superman. Zegan Sharko. I don't uh, I don't get that reference. Never mind, my kids love it. Anyway, I mentioned last week that Egyptian context, which lurks behind this in Genesis three. You know that Egyptian flavor. Ah, uh, yes, the Egyptian flavor. Lots of spices. Yeah, well, it's spicy, all right. So there are more of those pyramid texts that we were reading, which uh, talk about this idea of serpents being trampled on, and I think we touched on that with some of those spells that we read last time. I'll give you a couple of those just to show some examples. Uh, this is pyramid text 378. Cobra to the sky, Horus's centipede to the earth. Horus's sandal has stepped knee snake. The knee snake is for Horus, the young boy with his finger in his mouth. Teddy is Horus, the young boy, with his finger in his mouth. Since Teddy is young, he has stepped on you. Had Teddy become experienced, he would not have stepped on you. For you are the secreted and mysterious one the gods speak of. For you have no feet and you have no arms with which you might go after your brothers, the gods. Very uh, interesting way to describe a serpent there being uh, stepped on by someone who maybe should have known better to leave him alone. Uh, Pyramid text 388. Where is Horus, who escaped from the shunned snake? Behold, Teti. Teti is Horus, who escaped from the shunned snake and ran. He, the snake, shall be given no messenger. His child has been taken from him. The snake, penis catch. Horus has clubbed his mouth with his foot. Oh, drat and tarnation, I said penis. I wasn't going to do that. You just said it again. What are you doing? Stop it. Well, we're talking about cursing. Anyway, you can see some examples from the ancient Near Eastern culture that describe the idea of a serpent being cursed, destined to be crushed underfoot. That first one was interesting where it says, you have no feet and you have no arms with which you might go after your brothers, the gods. Doesn't that sound a lot like the serpent? In here? It does, uh, in a way, doesn't it? But what about the bit where it says in the Bible that the serpent will strike his heel? Where does that idea come from? Hmm, that's a really good question. I'm glad you're asking all these questions. I think I'm going to skip the Q&A today and do something different. But let's answer your question. Obviously, the great danger of walking around in the ancient world where the wilderness so easily intrudes into your everyday life is that you could easily disturb a snake unknowingly and have it bite you as you walk past. So I guess that is kind of self-explanatory. The seed of the woman will trample on the serpent's head or the serpent will strike his heel. And it just depends who is the first to spot the other one as to who gets the upper hand. So there's this constant vigilance where each looks out for the other. But the Bible does something really interesting with the bad guy in this narrative. It actually provides hope, not for the serpent, but for those who've fallen into sin and in that way have become the seed of the serpent. That's all of us, by the way. Uh, interesting. So how does that work? Well, before I get inundated with sternly worded emails in all caps, let me remind our audience that the New Testament authors that we read earlier made it clear that all it takes to be a son of the devil or to be of his seed is to do what he does. It's not a category distinction. This isn't like being a reptilian lizard creature or a giant or something. Do you know why in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the farmer says not to rip out the weeds before harvest? It's because you have the chance before harvest time to change how you live and become the good seed instead of the bad. It's behaviour, not biology. That's why it says that if they pulled up the weeds early, they might uproot the wheat. Some who are living as weeds have still got a chance to become wheat. That's what God can do when you repent. But getting back to the point, the serpent is the one who grabs at the heel. And when I say it like that, it's remind you of Jacob. You remember the story. This is Genesis 25, 26. And after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. Jacob's an interesting name. It means something like the supplanter or layer of snares. The name fits. 
Jacob is not a good guy. You can see how he fits the description of a seed of the serpent. Yeah, it's not a stretch. I mean, this is the guy who sold his brother a bowl of stew at the cost of his birthright, and then he cheated his brother out of the blessing of his father, literally the destiny that was meant for his brother. What a, uh, what a horrible guy. Yeah, yeah, but then later, Jacob has an encounter with God. Remember the story where he wrestles with this man all night only to find out that the man was actually God, and Jacob demands a blessing from him. God blesses him and changes his name to Israel. Literally, it means one who struggles with God. This is Genesis 35, verses 9 to 12. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. So Jacob becomes Israel, and to his seed, to the people who were at first the enemies of God, who fought against God, who were out for themselves, he gives them a blessing and the promise of inheritance. And Israel becomes the name of all God's people. As we go through the Torah, we find that people from anywhere in the world could become part of Israel. We also find that those who broke the law of the covenant were excluded from that community. But watch what happens throughout the course of biblical history. At the Exodus, and I alluded to this before, the people who became known as Israel were not just those who descended from the body of Jacob, but they were all those who were faithful and obedient to the God of Jacob. And that is evident in that the Egyptians who participated in the Passover were saved, while the Israelites who did not participate in Passover were visited by the angel of death. As we know, the kingdom became divided and the 10 northern tribes retained the name of Ephraim, while the two southern tribes were known as Judah. And yet when Ezekiel speaks of their reunification, they are collectively called Israel. Likewise, the New Testament speaks of Israel, and in Paul's mind, that word now applies to not only God's covenant community of returned Judahites and returned Israelites, but also faithful Gentiles. Israel is and has always been the name given to God's covenant community of faithful believers, those who formerly were enemies of God, who wrestled and grasped and fought for selfishness and to seek their own benefit at the expense of others, like Jacob the heel grasper, it was according to the seed of the serpent, one who did evil rather than good. But God changed Jacob. And God changes me and you. And all of us have become Israel because we previously fought with God and have now received his blessing. Even today in our personal lives, we continue to wrestle with God as he sanctifies us. We were once the seed of the serpent doing as the serpent does. But now we've become the seed of the woman, the line of righteousness, the seed of Abraham, the line of faithfulness, the sons of God, the heirs of salvation and glory, because God has changed us and continues to bring about that change. That enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is the struggle in our flesh every day as we transition from death to life in the process of sanctification and transformation that is necessary to become sons of God. It's not about different species on the earth. It's not about bloodlines and family heritage. It's not about race or nationality or skin color. It's about becoming a son of God rather than remaining 
as an enemy to him. Hey, man, Viner, that's a really good word right there. Uh, but I think we'd better leave it for now. And as usual, our study will resume next episode as we continue to explore Genesis 3. But what have you got for us right now? It's been a really long time since we've had one of these deeper dive segments where I talk in greater depth about stuff that I covered in the book and try to give you some insights beyond the pages. And I wasn't really planning on doing it except that I was listening to another podcast recently, which got me thinking. Oh boy, this sounds uh, dangerous. Yeah. I was just listening to Dr. Michael Heiser on his Naked Bible podcast, which I really recommend. If you're not already listening, you should be. And His most recent episode was a critique of a book written by Dr. John H. Walton and his son, J. Harvey Walton. The book is called Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology. I should say up front that I have not read this book, but I am quite familiar with the teaching that you get from the Waltons, having read several of their other works. And of course, you can listen to them uh, speaking online as well. Dr. Heiser is quite rightly critical of the book. He points out that the main premise of the book is a denial of the forces of supernatural evil on the basis that biblical cosmology, as he and many other scholars understand it, does not stand up against modern science. And if the cosmology of the ancient biblical authors is not scientifically reliable, then why would we trust them to provide truth claims about the inhabitants of this cosmology? Something about that doesn't sound quite right. Yeah, and Heiser's main critique is that Walton's logic is inconsistent. Walton wants to say that the bad guys are not real, but God is, even though they both inhabit the same cosmology that Walton insists is scientifically false. I totally agree with Dr. Heiser that it is inconsistent to argue that certain divine beings are real and others are not based on picking and choosing biblical texts and connecting the bad guys to a scientifically incorrect cosmological understanding in order to deny their reality. There's pretty much no way that would hold up under any kind of scrutiny for more than five minutes. Yeah, that's fair. And it's not really the kind of argument you'd expect to get from a biblical scholar. Hmm. At this point, I just want to mention, though, although I've had at least one detractor in the past claiming that I'm just a parrot of Dr. Heiser and his material and I have nothing to contribute beyond whatever he says, I actually disagree strongly with something that Dr. Heiser said in response to Walton's book. Dr. Heiser rightly argues that just because science disproves flat-earth cosmology, it doesn't follow that the existence of supernatural evil beings is predicated on the same flat-earth cosmology, and therefore it's all a fallacy. You can't just say, well, the Earth doesn't have a solid dome over the top of it, therefore Satan isn't real, but God is. The conclusion doesn't follow logically from the premise. Exactamundo. But then Dr. Heiser says, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course we know that the cosmology described isn't meant to be taken literally and how do we know that because of science (laughs) say what yeah so i was okay with all this until he said that it's science that refutes this understanding of biblical cosmology the reason that i don't believe in a flat earth model where we live under a dome in the center of the universe is not because of science it's because of what the bible is actually claiming in these texts that are allegedly providing a cosmological model when in fact they are doing no such thing So this is the point where all of this stuff actually has some connection to my work and the reason why I felt like I needed to contribute something to the discussion. Not that I'm a PhD or a professor in ancient Semitics or anything, but 
obviously in the course of this podcast where we're doing an exegetical study of Genesis 1 through 11, we are acutely aware of the fact that the whole text is absolutely dripping with ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And so much of the rest of the Bible is full of references and allusions to the cosmology of the ancient world. Yeah, because you have things like uh, the waters above, the waters below, all that kind of stuff that you've mentioned before. Yeah, that's not the same thing as providing a cosmological model that purports to make literal statements of affirmation about the nature of the cosmos as a concrete reality in physical time and space. So I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't use the cosmology of the ancient world, because it obviously does. My argument is that the Bible is not attempting to illustrate anything about the nature of the heavens and the earth in such a way that we're supposed to piece it all together and start making diagrams and charts and three-dimensional models. Um, so the Bible isn't telling us that this understanding of the cosmos is supposed to be understood as a real physical reality. I, I'm not going to go back over everything I presented in the last two and a half seasons and explain all over again why individual passages of scripture are not attempting to describe the universe. But if you are interested in my view on it, I would recommend in particular episodes six through nine of the first season of this podcast. The reason I create this content, the reason I wrote my book and put this podcast into episodes that you can retrieve and listen to whenever you like is so that I don't have to keep repeating myself. But I just want to make this very clear. The biblical authors do not care about the shape of this planet or the nature of the universe above their heads. They just don't care, and neither do I for that matter. But if it's in the Bible, doesn't that mean that it's part of the doctrine that God wants to teach us? Well, anything you find in the Bible is important, but the real question is, if the Bible says that God walks about on the circle of the sky, is that the Bible teaching us that the firmament is made of a solid construction to support the weight of God walking on it and fashioned in a perfectly circular shape? Or is that the Bible telling us that God exists as an Elohim, a spirit independently of embodiment, and because of his goodness, we associate him with the source of good things like sunshine and rain and that kind of thing? And since all of those good things come from the sky, which is inaccessible to us as mortals, we speak about him as though he lived above the clouds, ever present, no matter which direction you look. In other words, when I say the man upstairs was looking out for me, am I making a statement about the physical nature of the stairs, or am I focused on the goodness of God? Which would you understand as a listener if I said that to you? Yes, it's about God. It's not about stairs. There aren't really any stairs. Everybody knows that. I mean, God's not even a man, but we still understand that as a reference to God. Exactly. Turn to any page of the Bible, read any Bible story. And if you can show me just one instance where the story being told actually depends on a literal understanding of dome cosmology, nobody can do that because there isn't one. Not a single one. And that goes a long way to reinforcing my belief that if there'd been any theological significance to this so-called cosmological model, which is really just a mishmash of various idioms taken out of context, then we'd have some kind of direct statement concerning this worldview by a biblical author connected to some reason why it matters theologically in the broader text of redemptive history. And we don't. My argument is that the affirmations of scripture are written in ordinary language that uses figures of speech and idiomatic expressions and all sorts of stuff that reflects the way that ordinary people talk every day. And they're going to use that ordinary everyday language and the way that normal people speak to convey the message that God has inspired them to write. God is writing his story through these authors and nothing else. And I said this recently on the podcast, the Bible wasn't written to give us an explanation of where rainbows come from or to tell us why serpents don't have legs. And equally, it wasn't written to tell us about the shape of the planet. That stuff has no theological value whatsoever. And the constant arguing about it has become tiresome. On one side of the coin, you have people arguing that everything has to be taken literally, or else how do we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And how our blessed assurance goes out the window if we can't take everything 100% literally. 
Then you've got guys like Walton saying, never mind what the text says, because science will show you what parts of the Bible you can trust and what parts you can afford to ignore. And even Dr. Heiser showed his reliance on science when it came to cosmology, even though you can debunk the flat earth cosmology theory simply by a careful analysis of the biblical text that it supposedly came from. The joke is that on both sides of the coin, you've got people that want to take the Bible very, very literally. And the difference between the two sides is that on one side, if the literalism doesn't work when science is applied to it, then you throw out the literalism and keep the science. And on the other side, if the literalism doesn't work when science is applied to it, then you throw out the science and keep the literalism. When are people going to wake up and realize that I'm not talking about a real coin? That's an idiomatic expression, two sides of the same coin. I don't have a real coin with textual scholars on one side and conspiracy theorists on the other. It's a figure of speech. It's not intended to be taken literally. I use the expression because it conveys an idea. It's the idea that is actually the claim that I'm making. Not the reality or nature of the existence of a coin. I have no doubt you're all rolling your eyes right now going, well, of course I knew that, Tim. Don't treat me like an idiot. Yeah, of course I know that. I'm not an idiot. I just want to read my Bible that way, okay? Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> but we all seem to want to read our Bibles that way as if there's some magical rule of interpretation that says you can't read the biblical text in the same way that you would read any other piece of written literature. The Bible is written literature. The Bible was written by ordinary people who expected you to read it in the ordinary fashion. How else are you supposed to read it? The fact that the process was done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit doesn't change the nature of literature or the act of communication itself, nor does it change the way that we're supposed to read and comprehend it. Maybe it's just because you've got people out there saying, you know, well, if Jesus says that you should come to him like a little child, then that means you should have childlike faith and children tend to take things literally. So that's going to be my hermeneutic from now on. I'm going to read the Bible like a five-year-old. Well, good luck to them. I hope they like milk because they'll be spending the rest of their lives on it. When you decide you're ready to read a text that was written to be understood by adults, then perhaps we can have a conversation. But seriously, I just have to ask, what are people's expectations of biblical literature? And at what point did we depart from the idea that ordinary people wrote in the ordinary language of their culture so that their first audience could pick it up and understand it? And we have these foolish notions of common sense according to our 21st century worldview. You've probably heard the saying before, if the plain sense makes common sense, then seek no other sense. And then these people will tell you all sorts of stories about talking snakes and men with missing ribs because it didn't occur to them that the plain sense according to modern readers is nothing like the plain sense according to the first audience. Critical thinking when reading the Bible shouldn't be limited to simply asking the question, is this thing that I'm reading about actually real or not real? What about asking questions like, what is the best way to understand this? What kind of text am I reading? What are the general rules of interpretation that would help this to make sense to an ancient reader? Is my understanding of this text consistent with good logic and consistent with the interpretation that I use elsewhere? These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. And uh, we love it when people ask good questions around here. Yeah, yeah. People keep appealing to science, and even I get accused of it from time to time myself. If you've been listening to recent episodes of the podcast, you'll know that I talked briefly about Galileo and how he gave us not only the square cube law, which was important for people who wanted to argue for the existence of giants in the ancient world according to the flat earth dome cosmology model, but he also gave us detailed observations of the solar system and proved that the planets do in fact revolve around the sun, a worldview that got him in trouble with the flat earth believing Catholic church because it disproved the dome cosmology that is even today experiencing a resurgence in interest. Even the reformers didn't go as far as to shed that thinking. And I even made the point there that John Walton affirmed an ancient Israelite belief in dome cosmology on the basis that Martin Luther had placed illustrations of it in his Bible. Let me make my position absolutely clear. 
My use of Galileo to, on the one hand, support and on the other hand, negate flat earth cosmology has nothing to do with my own view. It just shows that hard science is of no value when evaluating the biblical text. My position comes from a careful reading of scripture and that's all. And my two cents worth on the Heiser versus Walton debate is simply that point. You don't need science when a careful reading of the biblical text will reveal what it is actually affirming on its own merits. That's why I reject the flat earth cosmological model. And I don't just reject it, but I reject the notion that ancient people really believed it. They don't believe it any more than you believe in a literal set of stairs that go up to heaven when I talk about the man upstairs. Literary expressions and figures of speech can convey truth without being in and of themselves literal concrete truth claims. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible that way. You just need to be sensitive to things like the literary context. And honestly, I think that you'd have to be a couple of sausages short of a barbecue to think that it's any different. You'd be completely barking up the wrong tree. You'd have the wrong end of the stick. You'd have a couple of kangaroos loose in the top paddock. Did you notice how in that handful of expressions there, if I throw in an expression that you haven't heard before, it becomes harder to relate to the point? As soon as you find yourself unfamiliar with an idiomatic expression, you start resorting to dictionary meanings of the terms, which are never going to help you arrive at the meaning of the phrase. I don't care how many dictionaries you consult, you are not going to find out what it means to have a couple of kangaroos loose in your top paddock by looking up the definition of the terminology. We use that here in Australia to say that somebody's got something not quite right in their head. They don't think well, they're chaotic, not logical. They do things that don't make sense or believe things without justification. That's what it means. As I said, good luck finding that in the dictionary. And sometimes reading the Bible presents us with similar challenges because we do not live in the same culture that the biblical writers and their audience experienced every day. This is why you have to study. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure the ancient world is full of expressions that we don't uh, use today. And I get a lot of kickback from this idea coming from people who are still appealing to that whole childlike faith argument, who will say that the Christian church has for a long time held a doctrine known as perspicuity or the clarity of the gospel. And on that basis, the Bible should be able to be understood even by a child without having to resort to studying the context of the ancient world and the language of the biblical writers. I feel like I'm stating the obvious here, but the Bible was written to people who lived in the ancient world and who knew the language of the biblical writers. Even in that day, kids would have had a reasonable understanding of what was being said, but our kids do not live in that world. Our kids do not speak ancient Hebrew and they do not live in Bronze Age Israel. Most of them are being taught that God supernaturally airlifted kangaroos from Australia to be loaded on board Noah's Ark. Oh boy, it's, uh, it's hard to get that balance between teaching what the text affirms and teaching what the translation says at face value. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The hermeneutical principle known as the doctrine of perspicuity is actually just a fancy way of saying that with just a handful of Bible verses, you can explain enough of the gospel to have a person making a meaningful connection to God and beginning to establish a relationship with him. It was never intended to be a principle that you could apply to everything in the whole Bible. I actually had a critic of my work trying to argue that you should be able to understand how the Anakim were seen as Nephilim in Numbers 13 without having to resort to an understanding of the ancient Greeks and Egyptians if that connection had any legitimacy at all between the Anakim and the Nephilim. I said, well, it's pretty straightforward if you're prepared to accept the words of the spies who were there in Canaan. He said, but they were lying. And I said, well, actually, the text doesn't say that. So how are you supposed to make that connection? How can you legitimise what you're saying here? And I said, well, that's why I study the context. Because it tells you things that the original writers just assumed that the reader already knows. That's cultural background. 
That's the context that comes from living in a time where these things were known. People don't write down every detail about everything they mention in the text because they assume that the recipient of the text understands most of what's being communicated. That's the way that ordinary people communicate. That's how ordinary literature functions. It's called addressing a high context audience. And most of the time, that's exactly what's going on in the Bible. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, you'd never get a book written if you had to explain everything because the audience had no frame of reference whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I just can't stress enough how important it is that we realise that literature back then still functions like literature today. People tend to communicate in the way that's most natural to them and that conveys the ideas that they want to express. And that means that people are going to say things in ways that don't necessarily correlate to concrete realities or dictionary definitions, even if they speak in material terms, either in the real world or just in their belief system. And guys like John Walton are going to kick back and say, yeah, but look at that passage in Job where it talks about God walking around on top of the firmament. Well, so what? I talk about the man upstairs, but that doesn't mean I think the stairs are real. What about when the dog dies and your mum says, oh, little Foo-Foo went to the big dog house in the sky? Are you telling me she really thinks there's a dog house in the sky just because she said that? All right, I think that's just about enough ranting from me on this issue. And I hope that it's been provocative for you listening at home. I would encourage you, if you have any doubts about this, go back and listen to the previous episodes of the podcast where we talked about all this stuff. And more importantly, get stuck into the Bible and read it carefully as if you're reading it for the first time. I'm desperately trying to understand what it says instead of assuming you know what it says before you read it. Hopefully everything will become clear as you spend more time in the Word of God. That's certainly been my experience and used to be that way every day. Mine too. And that sounds like very good advice as always. Okay, well, we are out of time. So once again, we will pick up this discussion next episode and answer more of your giant questions right here on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. All right, I'll see you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stepp on Amazon. Paperback, Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Read the blog and have us on socials, but you can subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Previously on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. <coughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to edit that because it'll be like this big blast of noise. <laughs> <laughs> Plausives, isn't that what they're called? Okay, ready? Previ- before 
on the answers to Jai Crestor's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try it one more time. Wait a minute. Sorry, I have to stop because I've got to turn off my air conditioner. It made noise through the whole podcast the other week and I couldn't even edit out all the noise. It was that bad. No. Oh, boy. And I thought I turned it off. Like, that's what I got out of my chair for a minute ago. Oh. And now it's just decided it's going to revive itself. Ah, uh, there we go. I think I killed it. Kill it with fire. Come on, kill me. I'm right here. You know, I don't think any Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation actually sounds like him. No, no, probably not. Yeah, that was quite a fascinating, uh, fascinating, fascinating. It sounds like I'm from New Zealand. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, that was a really... <laughs> Sorry, I locked myself out of my phone. So the Bible isn't telling us that this understanding of the... So the Bible isn't telling us that this understanding of the... You don't make it easy for me sometimes. No, no you do. First I thought you, you said scones, and then I thought you said gosnels. Gosnels, scones. Those are the best kinds. Well, you should know. Yeah. By the way, if those scones come from gosnels, they're probably illegal. Yeah, it's not about it's not about God. It's about stairs. <laughs> <laughs> come on, people. I can't emphasise this enough. No, it's, it's about staring at God. Okay. <laughs> and God staring back. Good. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.